You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Wow, it is so great. October 19th, 2022, the night before Bola Zol Festival, we are back in the studio at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. And this whole show is about Bushwick and authenticity, but mostly just about the, the craft products that are coming out of Mexico. So we've got some great guests. And um, hold on a second. Everybody's trying to reach me here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Let's go around the room and introduce our guests. Everybody, let's start with Tom. Hi, I'm Tom Pavlich. I'm a division manager for Be United International. I cover New York City, Alabama, and South Carolina. Great, man. And Gabriel? My name is Gabriel Velasquez Azueta. I am the co-founder of Tuyo NYC, and we also have a lovely podcast called Hey Hey Agave. I love that. And Patrick? Hey, I'm Patrick Dacey. I'm the founder of Duke's Liquor Box and uh, co-partner now in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Wow, man. You know what's great about this crew? Uh, Gabriel, I met you from Bolazol yes. three years ago, and Patrick also. And um, we were just together a month ago. So tell me about the day you took me to so- Sobramasa, tamales, and, and why that was important. Because we were like, let's get together, let's talk about Bolazol. That's what you brought me for lunch. Well, you were you were looking at the, the venue. I think it was for... The first time, or a yeah, it was the times? first the first time, time I went right? to Ninety Nine Scott. We were doing a, a run through before, and, and we, we were just talking about you know mezcal, how the layout could be, and I was like, you know what, there might be a really interesting way of of linking this whole idea of the the pozoles and the mezcales. But I was like, you need tortillas. That's that's <laughs> the, the 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 first thought, and I was like. Who better than Zach and Diana from Sobermaza and Jesus and Yara? You know, the whole team there is. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, the nixtamalization, bringing corn from Mexico, uh, the process starts at 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, it's, it's just stunning. And they're close to the venue also. Um, they're one of the up-and-coming places where food, mezcal, and culture is very much uh, present in every dish. And they're good people. Yeah. The, the, the most important part, they're good people. And I think what we have in common, you and I, Jamie, and, you know, I know Patrick for several years, and all that I can say is that we are good people. Oh, yeah. And then, Patrick, t- tell us about Duke's Liquor Box. I also met you three years ago. You, you came in probably with Raphael Lyons um, before that first Bolazol, and you guys have been the New York City, the Bolazol retail partner. Uh, for three years now, so that's true, Jimmy. Actually, we we did meet way before, or not way before, but before Bolazol, through Raphael. We did the Mead show here. Uh, uh, so I, I started or uh, uh, opened up Duke's Liquor Box about ten years ago uh, in, uh, in 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 Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and and we were spirits only, which made us pretty unique at that time. But our real focus, uh, which was probably a selfish focus of mine, was mezcal and agave spirits in general. Um, there was, I felt that was very underrepresented at the time. And, um, we got that going and, uh, started out as, as a tiny little operation. And I mean, not that we're anything bigger that much by, by now, but 
and that is how Gabrielle and I met uh, was uh, because of, of, of that that uh, shared love of of all things agave. I would say. Um, yeah. well, one thing you know about yeah. our event, so it's bozo bozo dot com. If you're listening live, it's actually tomorrow. But if not, it's something we do in Boston, and um, there's a lot of great people involved in it. Everyone that's an importer, producer, different chefs in different towns. This is a special event. Um, why did you focus on spirits in the beginning with Dukes? I remember you didn't even have wine at one point. It's it's true. We didn't. We um, I I wasn't passionate about wine, and um, and and uh, I, to this day, I guess I could still say I'm not. Um, but I, I'm, it, it is, it, um, it was out of necessity. I felt like for, uh, my surrounding neighborhood, uh, I, I had a newborn son, um, and a new family and, uh, had, had, was looking for something to do that, that, that the neighbor, not only I wanted to do for myself and something we could grow, but something I felt the neighborhood needed, not just our neighborhood, but New York city. Um, there was very few people at the time doing what we were doing. We focused on not just mezcal, not just uh, tequila, uh, not just agave, but we really focused on um, uh, producers that were underrepresented, but also producers that that made spirits that were like a food product to them and also had the same passion that we had about wanting to represent them. So um, everything really just came down to there was not much transparency in in the retail industry. Uh, or even for that matter, in the spirits industry, um, marketing was always the the first and foremost, and we just went the opposite direction. And um, I didn't make money for many years <laughs> because of that. I really like. But you, you have to tell them what's your slogan: uh, uh, "Selling spirits, not souls." Thank you. <laughs> well, that was like our old friend and co-founder of the show, uh, Ray Dieter at DBA. He always said, "Drink good stuff." Yeah. So that's that's kind of why we're all here today. And Tom, a little bit. So you're here because. I mean, we know Be United. We've done many shows with you, your founder, Mateus, everything from Hitachino to all these great German beers. But just last spring when I was in Boston with Bolo Zoll, I met your counterpart, Paul Tade, and he was at this great little restaurant in Somerville called Barra. And he said, you got to try this. It's a blue corn beer. So and I know Gabriel wanted to ask you this too. Tell us about how Be United got into importing products from Mexico and what you guys, what you're going to taste us on today because... We're going to taste the blue corn beer and some other things. So Be United in general, we tr- we focus on um, products that are not just representative of... We try to get both the like, representative... Let's, pour, the, let's start pouring the beers, too. Cool. Um, okay. In the studio, Roberta's Pizza. So um, we, we focus on products that not just represent the culture of a country, but also the agriculture of the country. And we did that with Hitachino Nest and Kyuchi Brewery from Japan. And um, the we, we've done that with Italian breweries like Del Ducato and Baladin and Chinese breweries like Young Master and Master Gao. And we've now ventured into um, Mexican craft beer and we're working with Monstro de Agua and Le Brew in Mexico. Monstro de Agua is based in Mexico City and Le Brew is based in Morale. And they focus on using ingredients that are native to Mexico. Yeah. And then, uh, Gabriel, so have you tasted these beers before? And what are we drinking right now, Tom? Um, right now we're tasting the Maze Azul from Le Brew. And um, this is a blue corn ale made with 40% blue corn in the mash. And what, what's different about the taste? I mean, how does the corn come through? 
You know, all the old craft beer, they used to say corn was an adjunct. Now everyone says corn's great in lagers. Now we've got a 40% blue corn beer that tastes really good. Yeah, it, it's light and refreshing. It's it's super approachable, but, like, you get a little bit of the fruity esters from the from the yeast, and, like, it's crisp and refreshing and smooth from the corn. Um, I think what makes this beer really unique is the process that Le Brew is using to get the corn. They're going into... Um, like villages and buying like excess corn from families. So they're not buying commercially grown corn. This blue corn doesn't have a specific varietal. They're buying the corn from families that have been growing it for generation and generation. And so like everyone wants to know, is it heirloom designated? It's not heirloom designated because these are like the seeds these families have been using for years and years and years. They're really heirloom. (laughs) Yeah. It's like certified organic or traditional practices on small farms. That's exactly it. And the people who understand organic designation get that better than anyone because, you know, there's, there are these farms that are practicing organic growing practices, but they're not paying to get the designation. And like, that's similar with, with the seed, with the seeds that are being used from this corn. That's great. Gabriel. You know, I was, I was doing some research lately and there are 64 races. That's how they refer to corn in Mexico. That's a rate. Variety, but they say races. Races and uh, razas de maíz. And it was super interesting because it, it has all these, all these cognotations of a living, breeding thing that changes through um, you know, there's there's uh, one of the things that they were talking about is you hear a lot about the term native, native races, native, and then you hear other other term, uh, another way of describing like criollo, but criollo is more like when you know the Spanish bring something from Spain, start growing in Mexico, and then that will become that item that will grow through um, in another country from another country. But in this case, corn was native is not criollo they they might be you know it might be a, a very interesting it's conversation like creole means like a mix or... is it from another country and then you bring seeds from another country and this and then you plant them in mexico and therefore you know the the the, the item that is going to be growing is going to have the terroir of the place not from Spain, right? So they, one one of these things with colonization that happened is like the move of people, the move of what they eat, where they eat, how they plant it, where they plant it. All this was changed for you know hundreds of years, but with that comes also a tremendous amount of 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 variety, but also of guardianship. So there's there's all these seeds that you will see throughout Mexico, and all these seeds that they were used to grow corn that is. They might be kept by uh, a single family in a rural town. It might be kept by a single town in a rural Mexico. Uh, there, you know, that the, the explanation that you just gave about the corn being the excess corn is a very simple thing. Mexico is corn. Mexico eats corn. Mexico creates like is is the whole cultural culinary base is corn. Um, so it's very it's very interesting to to hear that. And- one, one of the interesting things, we met with one of the founders of Le Brew recently, and he was explaining to us that the excess corn that these families are selling them, um, we've reached the point with agri- worldwide agriculture where they don't have enough excess corn to sell it to a commercial supplier. So it's like this, it's not like 
hundreds of thousands of pounds of corn. It's like a small amount. So they're going in and trying to instill in the younger people, the younger generations, that it's worth continuing to cultivate these like these varietals of corn. And uh, LeBrew is actually going in and paying barley prices for corn in Mexico to like try to instill that there is like financial worth in growing those ingredients. Wow. And let's just like say something about the different races of corn. I know what I've seen from Tomoa, the hominy, and I know that at, at Sober Masa, I saw bags of corn coming in. You know, we were, how many different ways is the corn categorized? Because it's not just by the, the race type. I, I am by far not an expert. I'm going to have to say this. I did a lot of reading a couple of months ago because I was working on a project. But there is a element that you can go and watch. Uh, Conabio, that is a Consejo Nacional de Biodiversidad, or something, something between those lines. And it's a governmental uh, entity in Mexico. They have just released a couple of months, probably in this year, a ginormous work that they did for the last 10 years, exactly for categorization of corn. Uh, go online, there's thousands of pages of, you know, just information that it was just compiled for years and years and years. Um, I'm very happy to see it because it's absolutely yeah. amazing. If we, I will give you the, the well, I, I will give I, you the link I've, and we can I've put it up. I've handled the the Tomoa, the the hominy bags. Yeah, and I didn't realize that the the categories are there's race, which is it's pretty the type amazing. Of corn. There's the altitude it's grown at. There's color, and excuse me, and then there's like the region as well. Yeah. So the region's separate from the altitude and the type of corn. We're super lucky. And in New I, York. we talk about transparency and a lot of things. But there's not really anything other than buying from a single farm here in America. There's no meat. There's no other product yeah. that's telling you even th more than one category, whether it's grass-fed or not. You don't know where it's fed. You know, it's a, it, there's a beautiful, you know, uh, uh, joint thought of, and we, you know, Patrick and I, we talk about agave and mezcal and production and, the, the We are extremely lucky in New York. I don't know where people will listen, so I'm just making it specific. Specifically to working, you have more than three or four places that they do incredible good job with Nixtamal and just doing the right um, masa projects. Uh, Sobre masa, claro, Let's talk nixtamal. about that process. I mean, you can look up Nixtamal, but I'm still fascinated because I don't get it. So I grind corn and I can make tortillas? Yeah. <sighs> Again, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to take too much. Me. I know a little more. You're uh, an expert. <laughs> Gabriel's the expert. I'm not. I'm He's not, like I'm Homo Universali. He knows everything, <laughs> something about everything. I like my country. You like you, man. <laughs> and I like eating. <laughs> uh, for what I have observed is being cook, is being set, like uh, cook to be able to take the husk. And by taking the husk, it makes it for what I understand, eatable and digestible. Therefore, after that, it's soft and then it's passed through a stone-to-stone -stone meal that is a very peculiar way of doing this. Now they're automatic and they have a motor. Before that, if you go to Mexico and it still happen, is the petate that is stone-to-stone -stone with a almost like a pin for dough. Instead of having anything else on the bottom, you have another stone. So it's just basically stone-to-stone grinding. Stone grinding. And that's the masa. That's it. That is, is not more complicated than that. There's lime in the cooking. There's lime to uh, do a, a certain uh, chemical change. I, I think so. I'm not, again, I'm not an expert, but that's what I, I've seen. Uh, and all that becomes 
like any other recipe. You know, how much lime, how much time, where do you cook it, how do you, you cook start, it. Then you can start saying, this is a different corn from this region. And if you think this about it, you have water. Of corn. You know, you, you just before getting into the corn side, that that's a whole universe and animal to deal with. But you have New York water. <clears throat> and that yeah, would go. Water. And that's the water. Let's get Patrick. He's not in a set. So Patrick. I, I, I actually did have a question. Uh, uh, going back to, to the, the blue corn beer we're drinking. Um, I, I've seen uh, a native native corn in botanical gardens in Oaxaca City, and um, and the ears of corn that that would have been grown, you know, centuries ago were tiny. Uh, so when when you're talking about the amount of money they're paying for the blue corn that's being harvested for this beer, are we talking now it's blue corn that's the size of like a ear of yellow corn, or are these uh, actual uh, closer to what, what they would have been in in their native state? I'm honestly not sure the size of the years of corn that are being grown. What? What's Gabriel's got the answer? Of course, come on. Right, okay, so Gabriel is showing me uh, uh, the Mestiz, Mexicanos, uh, and they're all various sizes. So, um, but it still remains to be seen what's being grown, not commercially, but from these farmers and 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 how how it's changed. Yeah, I imagine they they, they look fucked up. They do. They don't look like corn. They don't like corn. They look if you like look at these things, it's they, like yeah. with cider. All the ugly little old apples yes. make yes. the best cider. It, it's a, I'm it, sure. It is the same. That's what I remember seeing too. When I when I first saw these uh, uh, these varieties, I didn't believe it was actually corn, and nor did I understand how so much material could come from this tiny, like crooked pickle-looking thing. It was kind of like what my takeaway was. You know, that. Well, how about this? We're talking about natural growing. Are worms good? <laughs> I, I, we, my wife and I, the corn we got at this farm, they, they're very proud that there's always a worm in every few. Um, does that come into play, Tom? Do you know? Do you know the details of these corns? I, I don't know. When I get corn from my CSA, I never have a problem with the worm being in it. So, like, I think uh, Jimmy, it goes back to if there's a, a if, if there's an occasional worm, you know that there aren't any pesticides, and yeah, you know it's a living it's being, thing that didn't got killed. It didn't get killed, and it's also not a, you know, it's not a. Um, you know, it's not something that's like morphed into something worse because of pesticides. I think maybe. Oh yeah. You know when when you know a few a few months ago I was talking to Zach that he, I wish Zach he was so, so I, I wish he was here because he's truly well more knowledgeable of all this stuff. But we will invite him later. Uh, but one of the things that we did is just with the corn and the masa that they have that day, because it changes with whatever corn they're able to to get their hands on. Uh, there was white, blue, and yellow. Simple. And the taste was very different. Mm-hmm. And very different, yeah. you're like, what can be so different? Well, texture, uh, sweetness, uh, the, 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 the texture when you're eating something that it takes, uh, it has a different aftertaste when it's, it's coating your mouth in certain ways. Uh, specifically, like the blue one, to me, was sweeter. Sweeter in a way that it was a little more granulate, but it was sweet. And then the white was very mild. Like, and I was asking Zach, like, does this influence the way that you will think on a plate? Will this influence the way that you will use this raw material before it becomes a tortilla, before it becomes a tlayuda, before it becomes anything else? Will you choose flavor to match else? You know, a protein, more vegetables, a sauce, mole, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the answer was yes. And, you know, in, here we are lucky to have a few different varieties. But you go, 
you go back to Oaxaca, back to Mexico City, um, that is also, you know, it's Central de Abastos has everything. Like it's a, it's a giant universe of, of just commerce. Um, Plus, Patrick, you know, this is fortuitous because I didn't know that Mezcal was your, your, your entry into spirits. It's, it's true, yes. So <clears throat> just tell us your Mezcal story. Jeez. Uh, um, <laughs> this is the Mezcal and Bolazol show. And, and Pozzoli, we'll get to that, too. And Corn and Mace. God, I, I, so I, I grew up in Texas. I grew up in San Antonio. Um, which, which we've, you know, and then I lived in California for many years after that. Before you and Beto, right? Yeah, Beto. Yes. Beto in San Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't talk politics. But he's backed by the real estate millionaire, so. Yes, we can't talk politics. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all I know about San Antonio. The Alamo. Well, okay, so, so you know, we've always, we've always had access to tequila, um, you know that that was one thing that I kind of like just grew up around, and um, and then and moving to California, it, it I, I only moved there in the in the or mid early nineties, um, and then uh, and then discovered mezcal as as a completely different uh, animal or variety of of what I just thought agave or or, or that was, and then um, co- moving to New York and having this moment where realizing oh my God I've, I've I've got a I've got to start up a business and do something. What should I What What do I want to do? And uh, sit, sitting in and and talking with at uh, at the time, well, who's now my wife, uh, arguing about what business we should do. I, I decided to leave the apartment and 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 say, let's put this on pause. I'm going to go get a bottle of mezcal or tequila right now. And she's like, what's mezcal? And I walk to the liquor store nearest us, and there's zero mezcal on the shelf. Nothing to be found at all. And, and and then the worst tequila selection on top of that. Welcome and, to uh, Greenpoint. <laughs> welcome to Greenpoint, right? So welcome to most <clears throat> liquor stores in America. So at that time, absolutely, yeah. you know. So I bought the the you know the worst, uh, the best of the worst that I could get, and I come home and I'm like, man, this is crazy. I can't believe we can't get any mezcal around here, and, and even the tequila selection. And then all of a sudden, just bzz, light bulb goes off. Like this is this is what I I like. This is what we got to do. You know we. we and uh, it, it happened, you know. That's Duke's liquor box. Let's, let's jump back to what the, I want to talk about authenticity because so when we started Bozo three years ago, my education really just started then. And I kind of know what Mezcal is. Uh, someone tell me what the hell agave spirits are because there's, that's a plant, but there's other spirits that are not from agave. And then is it okay to drink tequila? And what are what is authentic tequila? These are things I want to answer on this show. So, you start with me, Patrick or Gabriel. Now I'm gonna pass it to Patrick. You you buy <laughs> so top shelf. Well, but I'm gonna. I well, first, let's start with I'm tequila gonna, first. The easy one. I'm gonna, How can there be authentic tequila? Then there's tequila that's not authentic. What's the difference? Because at our event, I know that we have we have authentic tequilas: Fortaleza, Don Fulano, Arete. Hundred. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, well, I. Oh, go ahead, Gabriel. You missed something very, very important okay. from Patrick, your from me. your story, and I, and I know it, <laughs> and I know it because I I, I was I able to I, I was able to see it uh, at the time when you opened Dukes. You know, you had a few. You have a very small, very very small shop. You have top quality whiskey. You have top quality uh, uh, American made spirits. Uh, 
whatever that will be, uh, upstate a lot of uh, different ODBs and things that they do upstate that they were absolutely are absolutely delicious. But the most important thing, uh, I think it happened right on that time that BCB happened. Like you had a few, maybe a year or two probably with, with the store and this giant, uh, very important event happened with all these very major brands and everybody wanted to come and have their bottles in this tiny little shop just because it was very, it was, it was on point, right? Which you one know? was that? Yeah. No, 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 but yeah, the, the, the best part the that I, 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 and then I knew that we were very good friends after that. Like, no, 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 And Gabriel no, sold, no. sold mezcal for a long not, time. Not at the well, time. Yeah, no. we drink a lot of mezcal at that time. But yeah, we, we did. Let, let's talk about the authentic. So let's try to break this down, and then we're going to taste more from Tom. So yeah. we know that, that you had a breakthrough. To, to, to carry these spirits was, was novelty. I mean, even here at Roberta's Pizza, 10 years ago, they had a, a mezcal Negroni. You know, that or a mezcal margarita. Those are things that people were doing 10 years ago. Nobody had a top shelf mezcal or tequila. What is authentic tequila? And, and, and what's the difference between tequila and mezcal? Patrick, right. most so, basic question, but it's really important. It, it is. And, and uh, so uh, tequila is an authentic spirit. And, it, and, it, and, and that's, that's not a, you know, there's no, there's no, um, you know, nobody's riffing on or or, 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 or beating down tequila for, for be becoming the commercial uh, machine that it is. But um, we, uh, so looking back, real, real, real quick and easy answer is um, uh, tequila is, is, is probably the most uh, commercialized agave spirit. All of them are agave spirits. It's made from agave. Tequila uh, w w is and still can be authentic. And uh, the difference is your production methods, your harvest methods, your growing methods, um, what you're doing, uh, just the same way as you'd be growing corn or uh, green beans or carrots or w whatever that is. Um, and so what, what happened was uh, tequila became uh, a recognizable name because Mexico wanted something that could be Mexico only. Um, not to say that mezcal and all the other things are either, but they needed something that was internationally recognized or they wanted this. And the the... The growing of the Blue Weber Agave, Blue Weber Agave is associated with Esparin, uh, which is also Agave. Esparin is a mezcal uh, a dedicated Agave, but it's the genetic mother for the uh, Tequiliana or the Blue Weber Agave. Uh, they're robust. Uh, they're probably the most robust and, and kind of the e most easily uh, uh, cultivated, I, I, I guess, uh, of the Agave. A uh, very strange division is denomination of origin. I think that will be the the the. Well, that, that's where the name tequila came yes. from. Yes, right. That's when when the word tequila was recognized because of the 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 region of Mexico, the 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 town within the state of Jalisco is te te tequila, right? So it's like champagne to France or Calvados to France or you know cognac to France or, or you know any of those things. But yeah, France the, is a great example. Of but that. but the production of tequila itself can be done in multiple states, which not a lot of people are that aware of. It can it can be made outside of Jalisco. I think there's three or four states you can actually produce tequila. And something other, uh, uh, getting back to what's not authentic, um, is the uh, uh, it's allowed to actually send tequila from Jalisco into Kentucky to get bottled up in the United States and then be sold as tequila. You know, the sad part of all this is like it's is legal. It's not it that is. they're doing something wrong. It's part of the denomination of origin and allows them to do that. 
what is really complicated, and we talk about authenticity and probably ethics a little bit. I think it is ethics. I mean, you know, but, but it is authenticity. It's so authenticity. It's, it's really about like like uh, um, uh, growing that plant for a reason, harvesting that plant for a reason, treating it with respect, um, taking the methods of production that would be ancestral or artisanal before there was uh, mechanized and industrial production. So I think, I feel like, getting back to your question, Jimmy, the, the short answer is any, any, any tequila producer that is not using industrial methods or mechanized methods for roasting or autoclaves or steaming and that sort of thing in, in a certain manner, uh, it, it's, we're treading, like... So how do I know? Because like we talked about this blue corn beer. Again, Tom, what's the name of the beer we decided? Mezazul from La Brew. So the blue corn beer, we, we know a little bit about where it's sourced and the farms. How do we know a tequila is authentic or not? Is there any way that it's distinguished on the label? Or is it just going to events like Bolazol or Duke's Liquor Box where you can find this out? Education is top. So education, really. But it's self-education. Yes. Like, there isn't really... There, there, there are certifications from the government, from the Mexican government, which are, are, aren't... It's not going to be shocking that it's very corrupt. You know, so like, like you, you get a, a the, there are, there are websites, there are ways to, to search, uh, the government gives every tequila distillery, every brand that wants to label tequila, they give them a number and you can research that number on your own. And if there's more than 10 brands coming out of that distillery with that number, it's, it, you, you could question it. Um, if there's 50 brands coming from that distillery with that number it's it's definitely questionable but you know it if, gets it gets into the point that you you start doing research and there's you know there there there's some brands that started very well they make a lot of money they get bought up and then they were push not forced push because they market and the amount of money that is behind them to grow bigger and faster and that's where it all gets complicated um in terms of authenticity, and I think the, the cultural, ethical part of all this conversation is like, how much can you grow? Not because you can do it, you should. Not because you have the money to produce more, you should. There's there's all these limitings that change the practice, that change the product, that change the culture itself. You know, like the, 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 you get into this point that, you know, the denomination of origin allows you to grow and do and make this liquid in certain point. And then you look at mezcal and, you know, there's, I don't know the exact number, but I know that the denomination of origin of mezcal is the biggest in the world. But I, I think, but, yeah, no, I know, agreed. And, but and, I think, and, that, and that gets very complicated because we have this conversation, Patrick and I, for many, many times that it's like, should it be that big? But, can, it, can it, it be but getting, getting back to tequila, it's supply and demand. Yes. Tequila is, is very tiny. So, so getting back to the first question is what tequila is authentic? I like to believe that they all began as authentic. They all began as, as a belief that this is their family, this is their land, these are their plants, this is what they want to do. And then they wanted to do, make something bigger and bigger to support their family, and they kept going and going and going. And then you have companies that we look at now that are barely tequila. They're, they're barely agave, but they have the name tequila on them. And it, you know, the man that started that or the woman that started that or the person that started that you know, three centuries ago or, or you know, however far back you want to go, th their intention wasn't to become we know what they are now. You know, right? there's that when, when this same thought, and then we we link it a little with corn, the fact that they're buying excess corn, right? That's that's that that's just it makes you happy to hear that that's the tendency of of striking this. But then I'm start thinking, 
this beer is really good, tastes really good. Could this become a monster? Could this become, with the right or the wrong guidance, can it become a problem in a country that eats corn, not drinks corn? You know, we'll see. You know, hey, this is a great start. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio at Roberta's Pizza. All right. Woo. Will climate change alter the beer and wine we drink? Come find out at Fern Talks and Eats in Brooklyn the evening of October 24th. The event will include a panel discussion with leading writers and makers, including wine writer Alice Fearing, Garrett Oliver, head brewer at Brooklyn Brewery, and science and nature writer Rowan Jacobson. Come taste the future with a special selection of beers and wines. More information and tickets are available at thefern.org. This episode is supported by HRN business member, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about bolazol.com, authentic Mexican corn beers, mezcals, and tequilas. We've got a great crew here, Tom from Be United, Gabriel from Tuyo, and Patrick from Deuce Liquor Box. So... Let's keep talking. So, um, Tom, you, one reason you're on the show is that you're, you're my favorite importer, Be United, out of Connecticut. You guys are now importing Mexican beers. So we tried the first beer, the blue corn beer. What's the second beer that we're trying? The second beer we're trying is called Nachtli um, from Monster de Agua. Monster de Agua is based out of Mexico City. Um, this beer is really unique in that it is a prickly pear golden ale. And in the making of this beer, they use, if I have my story right, it's roughly 50% malted barley, 50% prickly pear, with prickly pear making up one quarter of the fermentable sugar in the beer. Um, Monster de Agua has a very big focus on regenerative agriculture, and they want to be sort like standard traditional beer grains are not great for mexican agricultural land and they want to be sourcing their fermentable sugars from alternate sources and this is one example they have a couple other beers that are using agua miel as the alternate source of fermentable sugar but um what's agua miel honey water the raw agave is that you go on go uh, it's, it's the agave nectar is is the, the raw material for pulque the most ancestral and oldest fermented drink in Mexico. But, um, but wait, and how do you say prickly pear in, in Spanish? Tuna. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and um, we'll get Americans who will see the um, Mexican bottles of this beer, and it will say tuna on the bottle, and they'll be very confused. But um, but no, uh, I, Monster de Agua... It's tuna conservas. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> but um, Monster de Agua is one of my favorite stories to talk about because I, they are doing things in a very special way. And um, this um, Nachtli is one of my personal favorites, even though there's no cucumber in this beer. It's the best cucumber beer I've ever had. As the prickly pear ferments, it becomes this beautiful cucumber flavor. And they also use lemon balms and hops to smooth out and balance. All the B United beers, and B United is the importer, but whether it's Hittuccino or you know Schneiderweiss, there's so much balance. Like when I hear a prickly pear, I'm I'm so used to getting beers with fruit or other ingredient in it that dominates, and I don't. I usually will not order any beer that has a fruit or other ingredient in it that's not barley or grain. I agree. I'm expanding to blue corn, 
prickly pear. How does how does it come out so balanced? Like I've had celery beer from from uh, Brazil, but have you eaten a tuna in your life? Uh, not this tuna. <laughs> no, no, no. Like any, have you ever eaten a prickly pear in Mexico? Never. You if if you eat it, you will understand it incredibly fast. This the, just the like sweetness it. of the tuna. Uh, not and there's a million varieties. There are many, many, but the one probably that they choose is uh, highly fermentable. Uh, there's a lot of wine made in the old Mexico, uh, Pino de Tuna. There's there's a few things like that. There's a very famous drink that I cannot remember the name, uh, but it's it's made also a fermentation from tuna. Uh, it has a lot of sugar, so it works. It's great. I like it because it, my first. On really first taste, it's really dry. Yep. It is. It's really balanced, really dry. I want to help him the pronunciation because it's really beautiful. The label is an amazing. Uh, and it says, Mostro de Agua. It's un Mostro de Agua. So it's a very strong word <laughs> in, in Spanish that is, is hard to pronounce sometimes. Yeah. Let's go, I want to go back to authenticity, and that's also why I wanted to have you on the show, Gabriel, because you really are a unique person. <laughs> Here in New York City, and, and you sold mezcal. Tell us about Tuyo and what that does. And you brought these beautiful copita. What are those? And uh, your role in the community, because you're you are kind of this like food and drink ambassador here in New York City. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, brother. Um, I've been in New York City since since 2005. Uh, moved from Mexico City. Uh, first stop was Philadelphia. Fabric workshop at museum, doing an apprenticeship, uh, and just figure out that life was gonna be here. Um, so I'm a double. Uh, I have my my double nationality. I'm Mexican American, uh, the first one of their kind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been part of the Mexican community in a few different ways. Mezcal, sure. Uh, first as a it was a, it's a, it became a reconnection to my culture. Um, when I first moved to the States, I was very much removed. I needed to figure out how to link myself into the new place that I was living. Uh, I'm a graphic designer, I'm a photographer, an illustrator, um, working advertisement. Um, but that all evolved into a very interesting thing. 2008 happened and everybody was done. There was nothing no work. It, it got really complicated. Uh, Greenpoint got really complicated. Uh, and one of the things that happened, I started in education. I'm, I, I was a preschool teacher for five, six years. I had my master's. That's why you speak very slowly. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it became kind of part of the trade so, of like being able to communicate with Three-year-olds, that is pretty fascinating. Uh, also drunks. Uh, it's, it's exactly <laughs> the same method. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, all this evolved into a very intertwined uh, toolkit that I have, you know, the education side, I have the advertisement, I have the, the graphic design, I have all these tools that then I push all this forward to, to you with my partner, with Sabrina. Uh, Sabrina is also an artist. She studied uh, sculpture in Tyler in Philadelphia. That's where we met in Philly. Uh, she was part of the crew of the install crew for the fabric workshop. Um, and everything that we develop was a mix of everything that we have done in the past 10 years. 
Uh, I've been wor- uh, been married with Sabrina for the past 2006, so 15 years, kind of. You better almost. know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm horrible with math, so I'm not even worried about it. Uh, but what all this happened very fast in the past three years was uh, we created the brand Tuyo. We did this out of the necessity of creating having a, a creative outlet, but linked to us. To your means of ours, of to yo. So I love it. You, you come to Bozo, you've got this authentic, it's like culture, merchandise. It's, to it's be, pretty cool. To be all honest, it's, it's us. There's, there's, I, I, I will not even go farther than that. It's like the, the, uh, the best representation of what Sabrina and I as a couple, as us together, is the to your brand that we put together. We did a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of education and a lot of research. Uh, one of the first, if I think it's the first interview, was Patrick. Funny uh, enough. Yes. And and this was something out tell, of. Tell us what your podcast is again. Hey, hey, agave. Hey, hey, agave. Yeah. And, and, and it was it was you know we tried to make a video, we tried to make an audio, we tried to figure out what we're gonna do. Funny enough, he is the first interview that has no part of the podcast, but has a complete write up. Of everything that we put together, and it's basically a mezcal one-on-one class. <laughs> on on. So let's go back. So tell us this. I mean, there's a million things. Tuyo on Instagram, Be United, and Duke's Liquor Box. But what is mezcal one-on-one? So we talked a little bit about authentic tequila. Well, what is mezcal? And is is are all these plants agave? Yes. I've I've met so tall. They say there's different plants. That's are they a, agave. Is 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 a people would say it's a cousin. It's not. It's a product. It's a different plant. First of all, so the production and the way that it's done is extremely is similar, if it's not identical to mezcal. But technically, yes. these all these different spirits are not all agave spirits. So I, think, I think Sotol is the only one that is not. It's the only one. Not agave. Yeah, but it does it's get actually confusing. Not, it's so. not in the same species. Yes. Right. There's. Uh, there's and, and it's and it and from what I understand, it is actually slightly more sustainable in the sense that harvesting agave, you remove the entire plant from the ground. <clears throat> Uh, so toll, you're actually able to cut from the base of, of the plant only when it's 15 years mature, and then it will take another 15 years for that to grow back versus removing 10 to 15-year-old agave and then having to reseed. Or, But uh, agave is the asparagus family. Yes, asparagus. And, yeah. the, and then Satol yeah. is not. Um, and so they are different families, uh, But but uh, and they drink... The production method is the same, like Gabriel is saying. Uh, however, when you when you and, and there are many varieties of Satol, not as many as as agave, at least that are documented. And it tends to be on the north part of Mexico. And, well, also it tends to grow a, a whole lot in the uh, southwest of the United States. So Satol uh, is g- all. G- give us a, a top ten hits of or top three hits of some of the Mexican spirits that you that you have on the shelf at Duke's Liquor Box in Greenpoint. Uh, well, I, I, th- I think Satol is is uh, one of our favorites that we we really try and, and turn people on to, um, and then there are there are categories outside of mezcal that are made from agave, such as bacanora, Ricea, and um, and those methods. The, especially, can you, can you in, tell us a couple brands that you have uh, on, that you have on the shelf at your store? In uh, so for the Ricea, the La Venenosa is excellent. Um, for some bacanora. Um, Rancho? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. We have uh, Rancho back. Yeah, that yep. And um, 
the uh, Amathia of uh, of uh, a, a um, mezcal produced outside of um, Oaxaca, being the, the most primary state for mezcal production. Um, these guys are in. Is that, is that your Tom? Yes. Tom, you can tell Guerrero. us. Don, tell us about that, Tom. So, um, so you guys also import mezcal too. We recently started importing mezcal, and Dukes and Stella's in Greenpoint are two of the only stores in the city where you can buy bottles of it. But um, we started working with a producer called Casa Leon Rojo. Um, they make Mathia mezcal. They're based in Guerrero. Um, all of their plants are in the Rio Balsa Basin. And um, they're an artisanal mezcal producer. We work directly with the head of the family. Um, there's no middleman. And um, let's taste that. He's certified. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's certified too. But um, you know, it, it's it's hard to go too deep into spirits because I I started in wine and I could drink a lot of wine and then I got into craft beer and cider and I can drink a lot of that. I, I I've had my taste of talk. I, when I drink spirits, all right, there's my pitch. I only drink top shelf. I have no point in, if I want a, a low alcohol buzz, I'm going to drink a nice beer uh, or a cider. So for me, if I'm drinking alcohol, like hard liquor, I want top shelf, authentic, really well made with a sense of agriculture behind it. Um, and these guys are trying to help us define it. But like many things, it's like trying to tell someone, go to the farmer's market and buy a good small farm product. Most people don't have the language to talk about it. And, you know, I, I don't usually rant, but personally for me, it's, it's food and drink. I want to know where it's from, but it's not so much that it's from Texas or Oklahoma. I want to know, like, the real process behind it, and I want to see that on the label. And, and, again, I'm going back to the hominy and the corn from Tomoa because I didn't know that you could break down a, a product from the elevation it was grown at, the variety, the color, and the region – just those four simple dis- distinctions alone are, are pretty wild. It's like, where do you get fish? You know, is it North Atlantic or is it the Gulf of Mexico? When you ask me about Mezcal 101, you know, my brain starts scrambling a little bit, but I, I have a clear mission now to tell you. When I was in front of a group that I needed to express and convey and inform and educate what Mezcal 101 was, it was about the people, not the drink that was that was my number one mission to make them understand that this was not a product that this was not something that it just made by itself like there's so much of the story of the families of the town of the state of the country like you go to, from tiny to you know from micro to macro very very fast uh, denomination of origin the plant origin who, who grows Typical it's, it's, small it, it gets it gets it gets really fast, but there's two very distinctive things. Either is a agave that is grown in the wild, or agave that is grown in a farm, or or you know is is farm agave. That's the very two very distinctive things. There's a middle point that you can talk about the ones that they're being grown by seed and then transferred to the field to let them do their thing, right? But the, the main division will be that. And then, you know, there's a three-hour conversation of just that. So most of the espadín, most of the, the espadín that you will drink that is mostly from Oaxaca, you know, the, there's a, a bigger percentage of that kind of production and product in the States. Uh, worth mentioning, 85% of production is in the States. Okay. It's That's huge. A tasting note. So... 
Tom, this mezcal, tell us what it is again, and then Patrick's going to give us some tasting notes. Uh, the producer is called Casa Leon Rojo, and the mezcal is Mithia Mezcal. It's an artisanal mezcal from Guerrero. And then Patrick. And, and I think I, I, I also think it's noteworthy that Guerrero, um, the uh, agave here is Sanito, I believe. Or, um, this one's Cupriata. Oh, Cupriata. I apologize. Right. Uh, Durango is, or Guerrero is Cuperata, Durango would be Sanito. Sanito. And, and, and so just real quick, uh, going back to like one-on-one stuff, like, um, but Gabriel was saying, um, Oaxaca, Esparin is to Oaxaca, um, Esparin is the plant? Esparin is this, the variety of agave is to Oaxaca, um, what Cupriata would be to Guerrero or what Sanito would be to Durango. Um, but so, I mean, just let's go get real. So getting right into what this guy does for me, um, the immediate nose on this is just cream and just, uh, some herbaceousness and it's so much different than what Gabrielle was pouring for us earlier, which, um, it's a night and day difference. Like, I mean, they're almost two different spirits, but they're both made from agave, um, Gabriel, what was the first mezcal that we tasted? The first mezcal that we tasted was a buo mezcal. That was that was the brand that I was working uh, the past couple of years. Which would be like a standard traditional espadín. Standard traditional Santiago Matatlan, forty five percent, beautiful family, great product, uh, just straight on espadín um, quality. Forty five percent. Usually, you see this uh, well mezcal that you know th- th- that becomes a whole other conversation, but. Uh, that they use for cocktail. Um, for some reason, our friends in the States love their cocktails. I personally love drinking just straight like I, this. I like straight spirits. That's what, we, right. st- that's what we start to you. And you that's know, what like, Bola's is always just so you know, kids. Come taste 100 spirits. If not tomorrow night, next year. Yeah, right. And, and, it, and this, this is, this, getting back to the Mathia, this is just full and rich yes. and creamy. For, it's a 46%, 46% AVV. Uh, small production it says 200, 208 bottles uh, it's just sweet you know Cupriata has a very very specific very yeah, specific taste but it's got a sweet acidity that's the one thing and a cit- citrusy in some way or form too go with this because my other question is you go into this one Tom but also it's amazing that your little importers that had Japanese beer German beer is now importing really good products from Mexico. Well, um, the only thing I was going to say was when I taste people with this, most people, even if they're into mezcal, have not had Cuprieta agave mezcal. And um, wait, that's the number one thing they say, that it's sweet. And it's not like sweet in the sense that it's sugary. It just has a little bit sweeter than your like what you're used to. You know, Guerrero, Guerrero sadly... Is a very complicated state. It has a lot of problems with narco-traffic. It has a lot of problems with just danger in, in itself. So a lot of friends and a lot of brands that we know, and I say we know because Patrick and I, we, we have been in this mezcal world for a little bit. Uh, when you taste it, and it, it's just delicious, but it's not accessible. A lot of brands that had a, a mezcal expression from Guerrero end up, either having one every other three, four years, or they will, you know, you hear the stories of like, you know, we have to pick it up far, far away from the Palenque. Um, things you want, things so are you, changing you, you a want, little bit. You want a taste of place? What do you want, Patrick? Because 
you're 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 the most passionate one here. You, you want a sense of place. You want a taste of the actual plant. What what are things that you want? Just like we talk about the corn. I think I do. do you want I, to care about the elevation? Um, I, I think I, no. I do. I do yes. think of the sense of place. I think of I, not so much terroir. I'm not. And, and when I drink this, I'm not thinking of, um, of necessarily the soil that it's growing in, which maybe I should. But when I think of Guerrero, and I think of like what Gabrielle said, it's it's been ripped and torn up by by narcos, and it's been ravaged by violence, and a lot of the a, a, a lot of the, the these air, um, these palenques or these estates that were growing in agave, they had to leave and go away. You know, and and came back to you know wild, wild. You know, their 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 you know their fields going wild. So I, I think of that a lot. You know, when, when I taste this, I think of the same thing when I think of like Bacanora. I you know in the north as well, but um, you know closer to the Texas New Mexico border. So I, I think that's what I kind of picture. Like if I close my eyes and I were to like sip on it, I think of where I would be in the region and and maybe understand the 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 hardship that not only the plants have but that the the people have to produce what we're drinking you know there was hearing you talk about all this and and just going back to to jimmy's uh thought of mezcal one-on-one yes family yes plant but there was a very complicated topic and you're just trying to ask patrick about the notes i my breakfast my my palate, my heritage, my gusto histórico. You know this this beautiful thought of, of like what what I historically have tasted and what do I understand as flavor uh, is very complicated and very different from yours. Very subjective. That's it's the very thing. subjective. That's the point. So I think you're, that's so, what you're trying to say. So, so, so it gets yeah. it gets very tricky. So I, I will mm. do this like thing. You, you often. know what a prickly pear should taste like. Exactly. I might know what a really good farm beet tastes yes. like. Yes. 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 So the 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 beauty of this, and it was very complicated because most of the people that I was in close proximity to work with, they can't go back. They're Mexicans. They're authentic. They're here. They have been here for mostly a decade. They are amazing in what they do. They're behind the bars, behind the cocktails, behind the scene. But even if I pay their flight, they can come home. And that that is just frightening and, and, and it makes me very sad and very selfish privileged to think that I, I, I can. It it was it and there's no real random reason of like why they can and I can't. It's like it's just different opportunities it's, okay. it's complicated it's, it's complicated but but complicated. but but authenticity yeah. and that's where i'm trying to go with like this is this is something that has become in the states a very important uh hold for people that can come back to mexico and feel theirs like mezcal is mine i can tell you about it because i even if i haven't go back in a decade i know what mole tastes in the morning i know what my mom kitchen smelled like i know what my grandmother did when it was christmas you know all these very tiny little elements that become taste so pozole again something we learned from the bozole fest uh so many of the chefs like the the list just trust me that bozole is an authentic event with spirits and chefs in new york city but so many of the chefs like like luis arcimota of la contenta who regularly has like the Mexican ambassador to the United Nations as his customer. He's from Sinaloa. He only makes yes, Sinaloa, 
style pozole just for this event. So there's it goes back to the grandmothers and the flavors that 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 they're talking about, right? You know, we're super lucky in New York to be alone. It's like we have top shelf liquor, but we also have extremely amazing uh, chefs going around. Uh, you know, Hugo Orozco, Ivan Garcia. You know, there's some great chefs there tomorrow. Really great. Last thing, Tom, I appreciate that you came. The hook was that you wanted to talk about your Mexican beers. So you brought two beers? It did. And then you brought the mezcal. Correct. And there's one more thing, a can. So canned cocktail. I, I, another show, we're overdue to do a real Be United show. It, it's still amazing that you guys, why did you guys go and put in the time and effort to cultivate relationships with Mexican producers? Like our company is based off of like organic growth. So you've seen with Hitachino Nest, like it's now very synonymous with Japanese cuisine, but like that wasn't an instant thing. We've been working with that brand for over 20 years at this point. And we know that there are amazing producers in Mexico that we can build relationships with and work on products and like bring in these unique flavors and aromas and textures to, and like that will complement like traditional Mexican cooking. And that's what we're trying to do. Wow, that's great. Well, thanks to everybody. I mean, Garbilla, anything else you want to say? Again, thanks for meeting with me last month, taking me to Silver Masa for, so Silver Masa is a great restaurant. Bushwick. In Bushwick, Brooklyn on Harrison. But at lunch, they have a takeout and it's in particular tamales. So tell me about the importance of masa to tamales and we'll close this out because that's what I'm going back for. There's, there's a few different restaurants. Sobermas is one of them. Clara is one of them. That they're doing the right thing with excess corn, sourcing their places, sourcing their raw materials from the right places. There's a few companies. Clara, who's the chef at Clara? TJ Steele. TJ. TJ Steele. He's amazing. Um, and Chema is behind the bar. One of one of the very, very talented um, beverage directors that I know. Um, great mezcal bar. Um, but the masa is the heart of the Mexican culture. The corn is the heart of the Mexican culture. And somebody doing it the right way is just sharing the right thing. Um, learn, taste, understand, and explore because you can do so much more than just tacos. There's, there's a, a whole line of other plates that you can investigate and do. Um, go to these restaurants ask questions they they're very knowledgeable most of them have the, their their information right there uh, so just learn and this whole show started for me last spring when i tasted the blue corn beer in boston so uh, thanks again for coming on tom and gabriel and patrick from duke's liquor box we'll be at bolazol tomorrow which means you will be at bolazol in boston in april and bolazol next year in the fall in new york city but um, just I want to appreciate that, that for me this is my favorite event. The people that we've met, the authentic you know producers and Thank importers and and people that work in in the industry. This is really the jam for New York City. Um, really proud of, of this whole crew and Gabriel. Thanks for taking the time to uh, talk and hang out with me. And you're a good friend now. All right, see you next time. Thanks to Matt Patterson, our engineer, for running the show. And um, I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. Become a member, Heritage Radio Network. Org. All right. Woo. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.